Well, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 77. We're going to look at Psalm 77 this morning. I think you know that the largest category of Psalms in the Psalter uh, is the lament. At least a third of the Psalms are laments. Uh, I think that says something. Lament reminds us that much of life is lived in a minor key as we wrestle with questions like, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, if you love me, why don't you fix things? Uh, I'm going to call this sermon Faithful Lamenting uh, because lamenting is a form of faith. We lament because we believe. Uh, We would not pray to God, we wouldn't cry to God, we wouldn't complain to God if we had already decided That there was no God, or that God was not sovereign, or that God did not hear, or that God did not care, or that God did not keep his word. Uh, And so lament comes from a place of faith, even if it doesn't look like what most of us consider faith. Uh, So let's look at Psalm 77 uh, together. I'll tell you in advance, if you're reading the ESV Uh, I am going to read the alternate translation of verse 10, and I'll say something about that in the sermon. Psalm 77 to the choir master, according to the Juduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out. Without wearying, my soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up His compassion. Then I said, This is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. 
Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Psalm 77 is a psalm of deep struggle and pain, but also a movement through pain and through hard questions into a place of trust and confidence. And so I want to look at this faithful lamenting under three points this morning. Pray your pain. That's number one. Pray your questions. That's number two. And then pray God's mighty deeds. That's number three. Pray your pain. Pray your questions. Pray God's mighty deeds. It's clear that the psalmist is crying out to God from a posture of pain. In verse 2, he refers to the day of his trouble. He refers to the night when his hands are stretched out without wearying. He refers to his soul refusing to be comforted. In other words, he's praying and praying and crying out to God and not hearing anything that brings him relief. In verse 3, he says, When I remember God, I moan. Now, that's interesting, right? We might expect, when I remember God, I have hope. When I remember God, I feel better. When I remember God, I'm comforted. Uh, But there are times when remembering God brings groaning. Uh, It doesn't make things lighter. It actually makes them heavier. Uh, The psalmist says that meditating on God makes his spirit faint. It just highlights that God isn't doing anything. Uh, And we get this accusation in verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. God, you are the reason that I cannot sleep. And I am so troubled, I cannot speak. And all this seems to come from considering the days of old, considering better days that are now gone, uh, maybe days of the temple, days of the king, days when God seemed to be with the people. There's a tension between the way things are and the way they used to be, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, I want to say that this is a brave prayer. I want to suggest that most of us give up long before we pray this kind of pain. We just stop praying. Well, we quickly decide God isn't going to answer, uh, or God can't be trusted, or it turns out God is not good after all, and so we turn away from God, we turn away from hope. The psalmist is not doing that. Uh, And I think that he's showing us the difference between lament and despair. So despair gives up on God. Lament cries out to God. Despair stops speaking to God. Despair gives God the cold shoulder. It gives him the silent treatment. Lament hounds God. That's the opposite. Lament keeps banging on God's door and won't stop speaking hard and messy and painful things to him. Despair has already decided that God doesn't care. Lament asks and even challenges God why he seems not to care. Uh, So faithful lament starts by praying your pain. Uh, It continues, though, by praying your questions, your deep, agonizing, honest 
questions. Uh, in verse 6, the psalmist said, says, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. The psalmist wants to remember his song in the night. He intends now to wrestle with God about what is happening. And in verses 7, 8, and 9, we get a series of six rhetorical questions Questions that wrestle with why God is doing things that seem to go against His character. We might sort of put them like this, at least a couple of them. Will God, who has redeemed, now cast away? Will unceasing love cease forever? Has God's reliable love become totally unreliable? Are the eternal forever promises of God at an end? Are they over? Will God who never forgets forget to be gracious? And has the God of compassion in His anger Put compassion on the shelf. Uh, I wonder what would happen if you expressed these questions out loud on a Sunday morning or in a small gathering of Christian friends. I think a lot of people would view this as a kind of failure to believe or trust the gospel promises. Well, you're just not believing what the Bible says. As if somehow believing the gospel means that pain and suffering and confusion should no longer produce emotions in us that we need to express. I think the psalmist is saying, this is what feels true right now. Uh, Do people have permission to ask questions in light of their pain? I think that most of us would say yes, but it's amazing how many spiritual environments there are that project the opposite. Uh, Spirituality means you always have to be happy. You never doubt. Uh, You just put on a happy face. Every day and every way it gets a little better. Hey. (laughs) We don't have to wrestle with whether it's okay to bring honest questions into God's presence because we see it right here in the psalm. Uh, Now, admittedly, this probably shouldn't be the only way we talk to God, but when we're in pain, God is strong enough to take it. Uh, If we can't talk to God honestly about our pain, we will not talk to Him at all. So these six rhetorical questions are really one question, and that is, has God changed? Uh, And I know, especially if you're reading the ESV or the NIV, when you get to verse 10, it sounds like this great affirmation. Then I said, I will appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Doesn't that sound bold and exciting? You know, but you've got that marginal note. Uh, The Hebrew is a little complicated. I'd be happy to talk to you about it afterwards if you want to. 
Um, but note the alternate translation. This is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Uh, this is the way a number of versions translate it. This is my sickness. This is what pierces me that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Or Eugene Peterson in the message, always uh, worth reading just to see how he does it. Just my luck, I said, the high God retires just at the moment I needed him. Uh, And I think that this is the right translation. I won't go into all the reasons. I think that this is the right translation. By the way, just so you know, I couldn't find anywhere in Jewish sources, in Rashi, in Midrash, you know, I like the stuff I looked, where this verse was translated or interpreted the way it is in the ESV, in the NIV. Uh, Which might say something because Paul in Romans 3 reminds us the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So here's the thing we lament Here's our grief that the right hand of the Most High seems to have changed. Uh, And as the psalmist, as Asaph or the school of Asaph is praying this, uh, I want to make sure that we note he's not expressing private, individual grief. Now, it's not wrong to read this psalm and use it for our private, individual griefs, but the psalm is not about that. The psalm is about corporate, national grief. The psalmist is singing here as the representative of God's people. He is leading God's people in lament, uh, likely for the exile, for the destruction of the temple. In other words, the questions are not, has God spurned me? Has his steadfast love ceased for me? Are his personal promises for my life at an end? The questions are, has God spurned us? Has his steadfast love for Israel ceased? Are his corporate promises for his people at an end? Uh, And this is a psalm about the sad and desolate state of the people of God. What am I to think when there's no king? when the temple is in ruins, when the wall is broken down. Uh, And I think if we see that that's what's going on in this psalm, we can take this psalm and we can also read it as a psalm of lament for the church. Uh, If the gates of hell won't prevail against the church, why does it look like that's what's happening? If the church is a pillar and a bulwark of the truth, why does she seem often so dull to the truth, so captured by things that are not the truth? If the church is part of a kingdom not of this world whose mighty weapons are spiritual, why is she so beholden to earthly power and politicians rather than word and spirit? Uh, You know, when people have crises of faith and when they walk away from the church, it's often because the promises of Scripture and the reality on the ground seem so different. Uh, And the right response is not to walk away. 
And the right response is not to deny that there's a problem, you know, like the meme, this is fine, everything around you is burning, you know, this is fine, everything's all right. The right response is lament. Uh, And I think there is plenty to lament about the state of Christ's church right now. Uh, There are a lot of churches that have gone through painful splits. A lot of churches uh, seemingly unconcerned and unburdened by injustices and suffering. A lot of churches that are more about protecting people's political sensibilities than challenging cultural sins and idolatries. A lot of faithful pastors who are deeply discouraged and a lot of unfaithful pastors who stoke the worst impulses in people and get acclaim for it. Uh, We often weep and get distressed for ourselves and for our lives. Do we weep and lament for the state of God's people? Uh, I hope we feel some of this distress. The psalmist is the worship leader of Israel feels this distress, and there is one person who felt it and feels it even more deeply than the psalmist. A person who was so concerned for the state of God's people that he wept over Jerusalem and went to the cross to save his people. It's okay to share the sadness of the Lord about the sad state of the people of God in our day. It's okay to pray your questions. So the psalmist prays his pain, he prays his questions, but then he prays the redemptive acts of God. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And as the psalmist thinks about what God has done about his mighty deeds, this moves him to a deeper sense of God's holiness. Verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? And that God's way is holy means that it is unique. It is separate. It is distinct in how he acts. It means that God can be called upon, but he cannot be presumed upon. It means that God is free to do things that conform to his holiness, even if they don't conform to our expectations or desires. The psalmist remembers the great redemptive act that defines Israel as a people. Uh, It's the Exodus, uh, verse 15, if you look and following, uh, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. The deep trembled, and it goes on here. You get the sense when you read verses 15 through 18, uh, and you see how vivid they are, the, the waters, the clouds, the crashing thunder, the arrows of lightning, the earth trembling. You get the impression the psalmist is putting himself into that moment in Israel's history. He He puts himself on the edge of the Red Sea with the Egyptians bearing down. And he's remembering how God delivered his people. And he brings his pain 
and his questions back to that fundamental expression of who God is. He is the God who redeems his people out of Egypt. He's choosing what he's going to remember. And his response to the realization that the right hand of the Most High seems to have changed and that God's promises seem to have come to an end is to revisit God's redemptive works. He fills his heart and mind with the wonders that God did for Israel, and he lets these displace his own thoughts of loss and regret. And he comes to this conclusion that what God has been in the past is who God still is in the present, even if it doesn't seem that way. Uh, Certainly for the church, remembering the fundamental acts of God's redemption means coming back in our lament to the cross of Christ, taking our hurts and our pain and our questions and standing underneath the cross and seeing ourselves there as the Son of God dies for us, the place where God has proven His love and His character and His faithfulness. The place where we can say, if God loves me here in this moment, as Jesus is dying on a cross, I know that God loves me in every moment, and I can trust Him no matter what is going on in the world, because God is for us. I think one of the things that uh, at least some people note about this psalm is the way that it moves out of preoccupation with self to focus on God's redemptive works. So in the beginning of the psalm, there is this repetition of the word I, I cry, I moan, I meditate, I am troubled. But there's not a single I after verse 12. The second half of the psalm is marked by the repetition of you and your, your way is holy. You work wonders. You make known your might. You redeem your arrows, your thunder, your way through the sea. You led your people. Right? What's going on in the psalm? The psalmist is literally getting out of himself and getting in to the redemptive works of God. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful to my own Midrash teacher here for pointing out to me three different kinds of remembering in this psalm. I think in the ESV it comes across really nicely. The first kind, you can see it in verse 3. When I remember, I groan. Right? This is a kind of involuntary remembrance. We're groaning at God's absence and lack of comfort. Then in verse 6, the psalmist says, let me remember. So it started when I remember. Now it's let me remember. Uh, And Let me remember my song in the night. This is a painful remembering. It's an active wrestling where the psalmist wants to reclaim his song, but he has to ask these difficult questions. He's got to work through the possibility that God has changed. And then in verse 11, it's not when I remember or let me remember. It's I will remember. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. And now we've got the spiritual practice of remembering, the spiritual discipline of remembering. We are retelling and even putting ourselves in the midst of the story of God's redemptive works. And I think it's so interesting because 
when you get to the end of the psalm, nothing is technically resolved for the psalmist. Uh, not, none of the issues of verses 1 through 6 have been dealt with in the way we normally think of dealing with something, solving something. But there is a new trajectory. And the psalmist has moved from involuntary remembering to painful remembering and now has arrived at the spiritual practice of remembering. He has moved out of his subjective feelings, and he's moved into the objective work of the Lord. Uh, So I want to end with just a couple reflections on the end of the psalm. Uh, You get this amazing statement in verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Uh, you know, the sea in the Bible, of course, is chaotic, of, or sorry, is symbolic of chaos and death. That's why it's good news in verse 16. When the waters saw God, they trembled. The forces of chaos and death tremble before the Lord. Uh, but what does it mean that God's way is through the sea? Well, come back to the Exodus. God does not deliver his people over the sea. He doesn't deliver them around the sea, letting them avoid the sea. He doesn't build a big tunnel and take them underneath the sea. What does God do? He brings them through the sea. God's way of deliverance is to take us through the chaos, through the suffering, through the uncertainty. And as he does that, verse 19 says, his footsteps are unseen. You can't see God in the chaos. You feel like you're on the edge of destruction. You feel like everything's going wrong, pain, chaos, fear all around you. Then you remember God's way is through the sea. And even if I don't see his footsteps, I can follow him because he's powerful and he's good and he can be trusted. And even in the chaos, we can be comforted and confident that God is leading us. That's verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Maybe that's a strange ending to the psalm. Maybe it feels a little anticlimactic after thunder and whirlwinds and lightning and earthquakes. But not really. You see, the question that we tend to ask in lament is, God... Why won't you get me out of this? But the question we need to ask in lament is, God, are you leading us in this? God, are you in our midst as we go through this? God, are we really following you in this? And the answer to that is yes. When you doubt what God is doing, where do you need to be? You need to be in the flock led by the Good Shepherd, trusting that He's carrying you and He's with you. Uh, So let's be faithful lamenters. God's way is holy. Uh, He leads us through the sea. It's hard, but His promises are not at an end. They are yes and amen in Jesus, who is the revelation of His love. Uh, Let's remember His mighty deeds and let Him lead us as a flock. Amen? Let's pray together.